Criminal Magic, Chapter 9. Thursday, 1302, GMT-5. Home is where the heart is. Now, if we can just recall where we misplaced that pesky heart. Answer thanks the pilot without looking at her, and drops the 5,000 from the safe on the seat as he steps off. By the time he's 20 meters away, the plane has reached the end of the informal airstrip, and he watches as the small vehicle turns and beats its way back into the sky. A voice calls out of the jungle perimeter. Hey boy, you gonna stand there all day thinking about that fine little girl, or you gonna hike on out of here with me? Answer turns toward Renee, standing there sweating like a beast with a smile on his face. If it wasn't for the head of hair, I'd never have known she was a woman. You got him trained top to bottom, strictly business. I never said a word, it would have been a waste of time. Very professional, though. Very straight up, yeah, you thirsty? Renee nods impatiently, as he wipes sweat from his face with the back of his arm. Myself? Thirsty. Don't know if you're thirsty, boss, but I'm thirsty as a doggone holiday. Like your outfit, boy. Them shorts is nice, and that breaker's bound to make you sweat like hell. Real fashionable. I'd have to say straight off the runway. Okay, all right, I'm thirsty, Answer slaps his friend on the back. What do you got to drink? I believe that's the actual question. Or are you just trying to make me feel bad? My friend, you wound me. Of course I got refreshments. Gotta keep cool in this here terrible twist of heat and bugs and what all. On that subject, let us move along out of here. Hot as your girlfriend ought to be, ain't it? Within minutes, they're lifting off in a different and more rattle-trap two-seat turboprop. Got us going in on a little project I got happening way off turbo, down Antiochia way, if that's good for ya. Pass up one of them green beers in the bag. Answer hands Renee a quart lager bottle labeled Cerveza Criollo. He knows the brand. It's Honduran, made in San Pedro Sula. The first time he ever drank it was on a drunken weekend in Tela when he learned how to fish with a throw net and ask for beer in Garifuno, the Caribe dialect. That was the trip when he'd stepped on a barracuda and ended up with an infection that Renee cured with a fever poultice made of mustard, guayaba paste, and some local mystery moss. What have you got going down in that part of the country? Not a whole lot of ruins out there that I've heard of. The Golfo de Uruba was not an area particularly well known for the density of ancient peoples. That's why you got your expertise and I got mine. Renee shakes his considerable head. Folks been saying 50 years ain't no kind of sign of ruins, but one of my boys, you remember Condor? Kind of tall, dark mooded dude? Oh, Condor says he found some shit and all down there, so I listen. That's what you got to do, you know. Listen. Otherwise, ain't a whole lot of sense paying folk to tell you what they got to tell. Ain't that right? Answer can't find any argument with that. In all the years he'd been collecting pre-Columbian objects, he had never known anyone as whacked out or instinctively on target as René. He is infamous in the incestuously small community of diggers, smugglers, middlemen, collectors, crooked officials, pliable archaeologists, scientists, and authorities whose lives swing around the discovery, extraction, and sale of ancient artifacts. René is one of the few people on Earth that Answer personally considers to be dangerous by nature. The plane kites over the leech-infested Darien, past Paita and the grass desert of Los Catios, before heading southeast toward Rio Atrado and the Golfo de Uruba. Answer finds himself wondering how it is he'd come to be befriended by people like René. Outsiders, bad actors, social misfits, misanthropes and ascetics, but remained a mystery to himself. René goes on about the gold objects his team had been retrieving in recent days, loudly complaining about the expense added to the project by having to pay overhead to the federal army as well as the local cops. Apparently, two off-duty squads of armed extortionists had ended up in a firefight, resulting in the deaths of 14. Quite a little savings to me, I must say, Renee chuckled. The less people to pay, the better. Patience is a virtue. His mother's admonition has run like a mantra through Answer's head for decades. Patience has indeed provided many opportunities. 
made it possible to persevere where other players have faded, waiting as a virtuous act. But patience has also cost me, answer thinks to himself. How long have I stayed rather than act, waited to see what reveals itself? Is it cowardice, unwillingness to confront my fears? What are my fears, even? This whole line of intellectual wandering has begun to prove intrusive in recent weeks, but what to do about it? The plane begins floating down toward another anonymous hole in the jungle. Almost there. Flannel sheets and thoughts of home make an effort to claim some space in Answer's thought, but he thinks, not yet. Thursday, 11.02, GMT-8. An instant before he is overrun, Kali stutter steps, falls forward onto his palms, plants, and vaults. His forward momentum and spring carry him just over the head of the onrushing pusher. He lands in the mud and stumbles to a stop. By the time he has turned around, the bulk of the pusher is only meters away. Coming back fast, pusher waits until the last second to lower his shoulder. Just blow this boy down and rip his head clean off. Nothing to it. Just plain nothing. Very clever. He's got more than one move. Reversing takes a full two seconds. Pusher comes in erect and throws himself into a layout scissor kick. Pill runs right past the two men, allowing himself no time to observe anything more than that so far, plan is working. Within two seconds, he's ten meters away from where Kali and the Indu thug are going at it. As he falls to his knees, he struggles to grab enough air to maintain consciousness. He rips open his waistcoat and yanks a thick, black-nozzled hose from where it's strapped to his waist. Back on his feet, he begins running laterally this time, away from the braying pack of mercenaries who have closed to within 50 meters. A greasy mist steams out of the two-celled nozzle, rising into the air only half a meter or so before drizzling down on the muddy embankment. It falls amid hailstones the size of marbles. Pill is running, screaming, Come on, you motherfuckers, show us what you got! Every step is easier as the tanks bleed out their heavy load, and he is wildly slobbering Crossfield Rant begins to feel like no work at all. Collie rolls under the extended legs, pushing up with his arms and shoving his own legs out behind in a snap kick. His feet plant on the other man's back. The impact throws him away from his opponent, and he finds himself landing heavily on one palm as he pulls his legs back underneath. 25 years of Tai Chi is one thing, but it's always a shock to encounter the real violence and speed of a street fight. You're good, my friend. Very good for such a small man, the pusher says to no one in particular. No time for admiration, really. This thing must be done quickly. There's other work to do. Pusher swings around to his left and lands a full forearm blow on the smaller man's chest. The impact sends a shock through Pusher's torso, and he throws his hip into position himself to follow the hit with a foot to the abdomen, but his enemy is not where he ought to be. Instead, Collie has swung wide, using the force of the impact to his chest to direct his own curve of motion. For a moment, Collie cannot breathe. The concussion to his torso is terrific, even blunted by his armor. The fallout from the blow to his chest has swung him around to where he is fully behind the other man. He lands a vicious left foot to the neck of the bullish body in front of him, staggering the pusher as he himself floats past. The mob closes in on Pill as he comes to a standstill. All across the narrow field, bordered by shipping containers on one side and the silt-brown chill of the river on the other, the runners begin to fall. In moments, the space invaded by the hundreds of running, yowling breakers is filled with a cascade of bodies flailing, spewing vomit, cursing, screaming. Their homemade slipcack that Kali cooked up in his lab looks to be working. No one that has set foot on the stuff pill sprayed out will be able to gain traction on any surface for hours. The combination of an extreme stomach irritant, traces of pepper spray, and the super slippery silicates makes for a crowd control mechanism whose effectiveness, from what pill can see, is truly diabolical. Where a minute earlier there was a galloping mob, there is now a roiling mat of blubbering, fetid confusion. 
The lucky ones are on the flat above the river. A number of men, maybe as many as forty, hit the slipcack running on the side hill. They tumble down the hill rolling and screaming until they hit the water. Some of them are sure to drown. Pill turns to see what's going on with his friend and the rest of the roamers. Pusher has never been stung so hard in hand-to-hand. This little one's exceptional and clearly wearing armor of some kind, but it makes no sense. There's no way any of these Newtown bastards could afford Flexan. On the other hand, there's no other way he could have absorbed that blow without getting his sternum split. In his peripheral vision, Pusher sees the sea of his men flailing around on the field behind him. Things are getting out of control. The rabble of Newtown are almost on them. No time for formalities. He reaches for the stick and whirls to meet the oncoming body of the smaller man. Kali sees how things are going and realizes that the crux move is coming. He glides into the mid-body of the huge warrior with an extended fist before he sees the stick rising in the other's hand. He can feel the punch of contact and the flashing discharge as 50,000 watts glare into his body, but flexan armor has neutral grounding. Pusher plants the stick. Fuck you, buddy. Zap and go. But something's going wrong. The little one is smiling. Pusher's moment of confusion is all that Kali needs. He swings an arm up quickly and snaps the larger man's hand back on the wrist, hitting the discharging stick into his hip. Pusher is on the ground, twitching, before Kali can get completely clear. Looking down at the Indu Pusher's head, his mouth smeared into a sneer of surprise, Kali remembers his father shooting a cow. One moment, the animal was proud and upright, an erect member of the living world, and the next, its legs seemed to splay out to all corners, and its insensate corpse lay on the clay pasture as carelessly arranged in death as a rag tossed from a passing car. Even still, the pusher still breathing. A sudden quiet evaporates in the din of a pressing crowd. People are all around Collie, nearly suffocating in their proximity, clapping him on the back, shouting congratulations. Collie rises to his feet and looks around. Nearby, many Indu men are thrashing and scrambling, trying to regain purchase on soil where no traction is available. Some of his own people are down by the water's edge, casting ropes out to thugs who have lost touch with the land and cannot for the life of them regain it. Without help, they'll surely drown. They shout for lines, Me! Over here, help! The promise of life, Kali notes, is a powerful incentive when it comes to accepting help, even from your enemies. So then, Pill shoulders in next to him, a huge smile swarming over his face. Looks like your plan worked right out. They're a sorry lot now, I'll say. They'll be puking and trying to scrape shit off themselves for a month of Sundays. He lays a hand on Kali's shoulder and smiles. I'm thinking after this, you call me whatever the hell you want. Kali wipes mud from his lip and points to the insensate pusher lying on the ground. Better have some of the boys bring the big one with us. We'll get him back to his senses and send him home with a message for the city fathers. I'll see to it, Kal. Pill bends closer and says, it really was a full-tilt miracle things came out like they did, huh? Myself, I was pretty sure we were going to hit those boys and buckle like a fat man's belt. Who knew? With his head still shaking off amazement, he moves off to organize the crew. Kali starts back toward the encampment. His chest aches fiercely. The ribs are bruised, if not broken. Even Flexan can't take the power out of a blow. Its one weakness is susceptibility to crushing, and that's what this other man had on tap. Crushing power. Privately, Kali knows that the real luck of the whole confrontation was the weakness of ego suffered by the leaders of both factions. Hail bounces off his exposed head. Man, oh man, global warming. What a fucking misnomer that was. Right now, the warming part just doesn't apply. Thursday, 1954, GMT-5. The car he's in is fast. Rene got him up to a town just outside Medellin, before letting him off at the garage where this rig was stashed. The road from Medellin south to Manizales is a good one, and he makes excellent headway. 
By the time Answer crosses the Magdalena, the sun is nothing but purple shrouds at the peak of mountains. He breaks around Bogota, jamming the throttle to the floorboards until Cundinamarca. The environment flows around him in the dark, the scent of familiar places seeping into his cells. Tired reaches him. Pulling onto the dirt road that runs along the hillside on the way up to his house, he puts out the lights and steers off the track until the car is parked under cover of an innocuous and crumbling thatch-roofed heap. From there, he picks his way across the boulder-strewn open ground, traveling uphill. Tonight is startlingly clear, he recognizes, even for here. At this altitude, on an evening such as this, the Southern Cross seems almost within reach. He swings his legs over a couple lazy wire fences. Goats bleat gently and move away from him in the dark. He smells roses, the remnants of the cut flower industry that very nearly drained Bogota's water table 30 years back. Dropping to his knees, he lifts a wooden lid from a low cistern and draws out the pair of infrared goggles. These are starlighters, remnants of the Soviet misadventure in Afghanistan, or maybe the American one. Very good, hard to break, and damned expensive. He trains the lenses on the hill, scope out the old homestead just to make sure. Satisfied that he is not walking into a surprise party, Answer stuffs the glasses back into their space. They wedge tight between the rifle handguns, goggles, and other goodies he has stashed there. For that, you know, just-in-case moment. Never can tell when you'll need something away from the house. Forty-five minutes after he leaves the car, Answer arrives at his cabin. The place is a lovingly constructed timber frame, one main floor, and small studio bedroom in the loft above. The shuttered windows look out onto the landscape below, a majestic view terminating in Las Rocas de Suesca, the 300-meter limestone cliffs that he has come to know so well. He chose this spot after a great deal of deliberation, selected it for natural beauty and maximum defensibility. The possible consequences of his professional life are, after all, never entirely out of mind. Answer climbs the short ladder to the sleeping loft and sits down on his bed. He takes a thumb-sized jade idol his friend has gifted him out of his pocket. If this is the quality of all the stonework from Fournay's project in El Triunfo, it's a great find. Have to see what comes next. Maybe there's something for me there. Flannel sheets beckon, and now he is finally in a position to listen to their call. As he feels his way into sleep, his memory shows him the gunman on the roof, the thugs in the rain. The fuck is going on? But for a while, he sleeps and forgets. Monday, 10.01, GMT-8. Calgary lays off the wing to the north, its glistening facades jutting up from the bottom of the small bowl surrounded by mountains. Coordinator remembers when Edmonton was the capital of Alberta. Hell, she remembers when Alberta was still an oil-rich hick province saturating the world with tar sand shit oil and carbon spew. That was all before consolidation, before the short-lived rebellion of the free French states, before the Saddam-style oilfield burndowns. Bits of cloud trail over the mountain ranges, bouncing sharp light down on the city. I could do without the annoyance of having to fly halfway around the earth to find some jerk I don't know or even like in order to make sure he doesn't get what he seems to justly deserve, coordinator thinks to herself. But that's the game. On the ground, she spends only enough time in Calgary to register at a hotel, bail on the room and renter's identity, and make her way to a private aerodrome on the outskirts of town, where she catches a ride with a business shuttle service connecting to Spokane. In less than two hours, she will fly across the great post-glacial ruin of Banff and cross over the immense topsoil-rich Idaho panhandle as she makes her way inland. Spokane may as well be a street corner. She remembers when she was a girl and this part of the country was a stronghold for skinhead culture, a series of enclaves full of insular yahoos whose willful disdain for human equality 
led them to commit murderous acts of incivility on anyone who was not white and identifiably Christian. They got away with it until the National Intelligence Service decided there were too many militias. And suddenly, within a four-year period, the number of deaths by accident in and around northeastern Washington reached nearly epidemic proportions. Cars wrecked on open roads with alarming frequency. Young people, particularly young white members of the Aryan Nation and related factions, developed an extraordinary, almost cultish fascination with suicide. Suicide by hanging, shooting, drowning, self-asphyxiation, autoerotic accident, and other, less well-known means enjoyed an unprecedented popularity among those of a certain ideological persuasion. Life, apparently, was cheap, and fascist youth seemed particularly anxious sellers. If that hadn't remedied the problem, the Mormons came to town. At the end of the day, the elders of Utah had seen in their neighboring state what looked to be a new and potentially rewarding area to expand the business hub of Salt Lake. Nowadays, Spokane was as friendly a little high desert river town as you could ask to visit. Chamber of Commerce perfect. Practically free of pesky dissenters, Coordinator entertains herself with cult studies. It's only two o'clock in the afternoon, but she's wrecked from the dateline, so she cleans her teeth with a bentonol floss strip and gets a little buzz on. Good to go for another ten hours. She loves the street name they have for this shit. They call it Jump Rope. Very markety. Looking out the window, she watches the arid wastelands of the western plateau unroll below. She knows their pilot will skid a little further south than he absolutely has to in order to avoid the restricted airspace over Hanford. Ever since the gas blowout and explosion, there's been a practical blackout of traffic within 700 square clicks of that place. When the bubble burst at the containment facility, Kennerick, Pasco, and Richland were basically just erased. No one but the military bothered trying to get into the immediate area for over a year. From what she knows, even the Eggman out of Cicero, the most hard-boiled object thieves on the continent, ruled out going into that dead zone for a salvage run. Gilbone, a man she knew from that crowd, once told her, let the Russians give it a blast if they got the balls. Maybe we hire a few of them to lift some stuff from in there. They're some crazy-ass fools, but look what happened to their hot goods crews down in Chernobyl and all that mess in the eights. Boys got rickets so fast they wouldn't get cash out of their pockets without breaking their fingers. Coordinator muses that the situation gives a whole new meaning to the phrase, money is no object. Now they are gliding over the Columbia. She can't make it out, but Yakima must be down there somewhere in the mist. Deserted, another casualty of the blowout. Drinking water for tens of millions, along with uncountable fish and animals contaminated beyond calculation for God knows how long. The government tried diverting the river onto the plains from all the major dams to keep the fish kill from being catastrophic. It didn't work. What it did do was guarantee that the inundated land would remain barren for 500 years. Thousands of people sickened and died within a decade. Even after all this time, there are still restrictions on proximity to the water from Kennewick on the upper Columbia all the way down to the Dalles. Potable water the single most sought-after commodity on Earth these days. In moments like these, Coordinator is forced to suppress the surge of doubt that arises from some remote region of her awareness. Sometimes, there is irrefutable evidence that the very technologies she believes in might prove as destructive as those that created the environmental nightmare below. It's a very human pattern, after all. All you have to do is look at Riverday. What a fucking nightmare. Sometimes, the fix for the problem is worse than the problem itself. She shakes her head, no point thinking about this angle when there's a job to be done. They cross into Portland at the site of the old golf course. Within 20 minutes, Coordinator is inside another identity. This time, she's taken on the life of True Wilson, an itinerant veterinarian. She catches a jump cab and leaves it at the foot of the Burnside Bridge, walking down into the hollow of the river at Laurelhurst Park to begin her search. The blur of just getting out of Dodge and immediately heading back into town would make most people's reality meter shudder. 
Monday, 1423, GMT-8. Downriver, Coordinator can see the immense bulk of the Hawthorne Bridge, where it shades the river running beneath its half-kilometer reach. Countless people are living along the bank corridor beneath that rises high on the cut bank above the water and butts up against Highway 224. You don't have to be a social scientist to figure this one out. If this guy Gray is into helping the dispossessed, head their way, and he's bound to turn up. As she moves along the makeshift duck ramps that dissect the vast shantytown, she is filled with a vague sense of loathing, a shabby cloak for her own shame and disgust. At one time, the sort of large-scale misery on display here was isolated, kept contaminated in slums whose very existence was considered a blot on the country's honor. She'd seen favelas in Brazil and the vast waterborne refugee settlements drifting off the shores of Hong Kong, Vietnam, Ecuador, and almost all of Malaysia. On occasion, she has had to venture into the depths of trash cities like the ones that ring the capitals of Mexico and India, but there remains a native reluctance to accept what has become of these, her own people. A tiny girl, three or four years old, topples from a cart being pushed helter-skelter down the causeway by a slightly larger child. The smaller kid bursts into tears, and the older girl jumps over to haul her out of the mud. Hey, young lady, do you know somebody who could tell me who's who around here? Coordinator loses a lopsided grin at the bigger girl. I'm new, and I could use some help. The eight-year-old takes her measure. She doesn't look too dirty, and she's keeping her distance. Well, my mom knows everybody, she says as she heaves her playmate back aboard the wagon. She pushes away, moving off from Coordinator, then turns her back and says, Why don't you come with us? I'll take you to her. She'll help. Melanie Colwright is a single mother of three living in a salvaged roof and pressboard shack in the shadow of the bridge. What would you want to come down here for, she says. No one in their right mind comes here unless they've got no other choice. She eyes Coordinator, who is seated at the small table. She sets a cup of mint tea down next to a piece of bread. Help yourself the teas from mint leaves I traded for, from flour for. They come from Tillamook, so there's no need to worry about them being hot. Coordinator sips the warm brew and nibbles at the bread. She notes that the steel walls are painted liberally in wild colors. Good bread, she nods. Homemade? Reminds me of the kind my mother used to make, dense and good in the mouth. Thanks, the woman says. It's from the bakery. I work over there at the community oven facility, so we get fresh every day. And since the hours are weird, I get to stay home most of the day with my kids. Coordinator gestures at the wall. Who's the artist? Melanie lights up. Oh, that's Clowey, my oldest, the one that brought you here. She's real special. Everybody says so. She glances at the walls crowded with the signs of creative fever. Her own pictures are better than these here. People from all around are asking her for paintings. She paints three or four days sometimes. Her work is really cool, Coordinator agrees. It's not a stretch to say this. The child's images really do convey a mystical sense of place. How do I go about finding some kind of work here in Newtown? I, I can heal animals, um, but there probably aren't too many opportunities to do that. I mean, pets don't seem like a priority for you folks. Ah, uh, you'd be surprised, winks her hostess. Times I've seen people with half a dozen cats and a couple of pups. Clowey appears at the doorway. Mom, when are we going to cross? I'm supposed to take the painting over today. I said I would. When are we going to be ready? Well, I guess we better get on over there. The woman rises and shoulders on a jacket. Can't keep the call of commerce waiting. She turns to coordinator. See there? Like I was telling you, busy, busy, busy. She's got a commission to deliver on the west side, so we'll have to get going. Coordinator rises, getting ready to leave. She knows sometimes things take a while to sort out. Well, thanks so much for the tea. She nods her gratitude. I'll talk to some folks and see what I can find to do. She begins moving towards the door. Um, you might try coming with us right now, her host offers. We could take you to the west side, and you could meet some of the people who sort of manage things there. The worst that could happen is you wind up further along than when you started. Besides, the least I could do is introduce you to the people I work with. Maybe something would turn up for you in the community kitchen. She coughs a sharp laugh. 
could be they need a vet down there too, since from time to time I've heard their food makes folks sick as a dog. The watercourse on the west side of the river is populated by thickets of people, gathered out in the open. Despite the dense drizzle, hundreds of people are congregating in the open, many talking in loud voices, laughing, gesturing. Seems like something's happened to spark up the folks over here, Melanie says. They sure could use it. Must be some games or party or something. They walk for 40 minutes, stopping occasionally to shelter when a particularly strong wave of rain threatens to turn a damp stroll into an adventure in swimming. Then they turn inland and work their way into the clustered mash of multi-storied steel housing. Well, Melanie says as she wipes rain from her face, here we are. She raps on a door and waits. No answer comes. Finally, there's a thumping from inside and Melanie sweeps Clowey forward and pushes the door open. Within, the room is warm. Steel walls covered with wood paneling, broken in several places by beige flats hung with artwork. A corkboard ceiling is painted light yellow so as to make the best use of reflective light. Coordinator admires the efficiency with which the tight rectangular space has been used to diffuse its own confining nature. Nice storage gallery. A man who looks to be in his early 40s steps through a curtain. He crosses the room and steps in front of Chloe. Did you bring my commission? He smiles. Got a place all set up for you. I even took the old painting down and stuffed it in a tube. Compared to your work, that's where it belongs. Before she can respond, he turns to the two women. He wraps Melanie in a genuine hug, seeming to wince slightly as he does. Say, Mel, how's everything? Who's your friend? Oh, we just met, but her name's True. She's a vet. I thought y'all might have some kind of work she could do, so I brought her along. Hope you don't mind. The man looks coordinator over, extending his left hand in a greeting. Well, any friend of Mel and Clowey's, always welcome. Please sit down. Forgive the house and my handshake. I'm a little sore in my right arm today. I'm sorry, Melanie catches herself in a lapse of manners. Almost let myself get away without introducing you. This is my friend, Collie. Collie, true. Synchronicity. What are the chances of finding him like this? Coordinator is not a big believer in luck, but the scalpel of experience slices through the sheer tissue in her beliefs with surprising ease. The rift now acts as a lens that both magnifies and diminishes, enlarging the likelihood of the improbable while shrinking like Alice at the entrance to Wonderland the possibility of the likely. Coordinator tries to pick up the conversation without missing a beat. Uh, hi, she smiles. I, I don't want to impose. Don't worry about it, Kali weighs a dismissive hand. This place wouldn't feel right if people weren't coming and going all the time. Wouldn't know what to do with myself. Please, sit. He nods at a couple of chairs. Can I get you something to drink? The girl speaks up. Kali? Mom and me, well, we have to go home pretty soon. I have to see Dr. Stella about my teeth and... Could you hang my painting before we leave? I'd like to see it. Five minutes later, Chloe's oil painting is hung in its own crash, lit by a single small spotlight. Beautiful, Kali tells her. It reminds me of spring, the way the colors melt together. I don't believe I have a stronger piece in all my collection. I'm glad you like it, the child glows with pride. By the look of her, Kali can see she's antsy, ready to move on. At her stage of life, appreciation is more often a burden than a gift. She edges toward the vestibule curtain hauling on her mother's arm. Come on, let's go. We'll be late. You know I hate to be late. Melanie frowns at Collie. I guess one of us has to set a good example, she says. Coordinator gets up as well, preparing to leave. Nice meeting you. I'll find my way back here later. At least she didn't have to spend a couple of days locating him. She's halfway out the door when Melanie catches her arm. Now, you don't have to come with us. Melanie waves her back into the chair. Like I said, Collie might be able to fix you up in the kitchens or something. You can come back by our place later. We can always find a place for you for a few days till you get settled. Our pleasure. Come along when you're done talking. With that, the two of them were gone, leaving Coordinator and Collie alone together. Veterinarian, huh? Collie leans into it. Don't have many pets down here, not much call for a vet, but you probably got a pretty good handle on chemistry, right? There's always lab work. Look, um, Mr. Gray, I don't want to waste your time, not that there's probably all that much to waste. 
Collie puts down his drink and looks intently at Coordinator for the first time. He smiles slightly and says, Okay, you've got my attention. I'm a station's coordinator and this region is on my ops directory. It's as blunt as an object. A few days back, some of our people were working a takedown in Portland and things got out of whack. Badly. Collie doesn't react, sitting placidly in his seat. From his face, you'd guess she was talking about mashing potatoes. Right, coordinator goes on. Why does this matter to you? Okay, let's try this on and see if it fits. Four-person team, two whacked or missing. The other two include an old pal of one Collie Gray and yours truly. I look up some data, find a certain comm incursion. Turns out this Gray fellow is ex-collective, and you can guess the rest. As you say, Collie sighs, his tone has flattered the pulse of his lab job. I can guess the rest. The collectives are past tense for me, not present, no interest, end of story, nice meeting you. He rises and opens the door, inviting an immediate departure. I'm sorry to impose, Coordinator says without moving from her chair. Believe me, I am not thrilled to be here. Personally, I'd love to oblige you and bust on out that door, but I can't do it until I've satisfied myself that a serious effort to fulfill my objective has been made. No offense, pal, but being on the receiving end of discourteous behavior is not a serious effort. I mean, if bad manners was all it took to discourage me, I'd be a professional recluse. Collie inhales deeply. Discipline. In his mind, he casts a slow loop of copper-colored light in a compressed oval, and it lands at the floor of the stranger's feet. He blows out the breath, and the copper circle takes on a dull glow as he thinks, no move. You've got 60 seconds, Kali says. If I'm not absolutely fascinated by then, the door is going to be your only option. Coordinator settles herself into her seat and reels out the story. We intercepted an incursion into the SatCell database from Portland that happened during the takedown. One point was mine, the other one belonged to a character who calls himself Answer. Going through everything we have on this guy, which I admit was pretty slim mining, we find you. When your membership in the collective was active, you were regarded as a very tight technical. My team makes the case that you provided the data to my man Answer. She leans forward. Two slabs out of four on a simple snap job. In this kind of work, you don't get dead collective members if the job is done properly. We all know that. Something is bad wrong, aside from your buddy's supremely fucked up attitude. Now it looks like everybody involved in that particular evening of fun is targeted. The whys and wherefores are irrelevant. I'm a station's coordinator. I don't like this asshole answer. I don't sign on to his little lo-fi spook thing, but he is still on the team. Which means it's my job to find him and cover his ass or burn down trying. That's the job description. Coordinator takes a brief breath. Now, if you can't help me, don't know anything, or could care less, then this answer guy is screwed, and for all I know, he could be dead already. So if you have any interest whatsoever in his well-being, I would recommend you give me whatever information you've got. Let's just say that House has a bad feeling about the payout on his life insurance premium. Coordinator checks her watch and flashes the faceplate in Collie's direction, tapping it with one finger. That's your 60 seconds, she says. Collie says nothing. The woman stays where she is, not realizing that she would have a very difficult time moving, as long as he maintains the mesmic fence around her. He takes in the power she projects, smart, tough, inflexible in some things, elastic in others, concretized in yet others. He remembers himself as he used to be, protected by a suit of moral outrage, fired up about the injustice and imbalance of a world gone lopsidedly money-hungry. He would have done, he did do, anything to right what he thought were the wrongs of the world. When the collectives came calling with their Robin Hood rhetoric, he and Answer formed a business dedicated to redistribution of the asset base. But everything went upside down, and now it's right back. Coordinator drifts in a daydream, her mind parked between a tour of her apartment's electrical panel, needs two new breakers to handle the security system, and images of herself back at house with nothing to report but the death of a collective member. 
did my best, sir. Yes, sir, I did. Couldn't be helped, no, sir. I did everything within my power. The lie would pass muster. The loser would be dead, and then what? My turn, I guess. The press of logic moves her where compassion will not. This guy's dangerous. I could be better off with him alive than dead. Her problem could morph into a human shield. Collie was trying to think of a way to rid himself of this unwanted intruder and get on with the business of managing the affairs of his community. At the same time, he can't let this stranger leave Newtown without the information she's come for. Goddamn answer. Fuck him, he tells himself. That asshole made his decisions to run with the bad boys. He's the one who got himself into this. Let him work it out himself. I told him this shit was going to go wrong eventually. What about your responsibilities? What about the world? I see how still trains you folks in the old style. Kali abruptly breaks the truce of silence. If you can't offer substance, substitute social niceties. Real progress y'all making off the charts. Is that why you dropped out? Coordinator asks. Got yourself in a twist about how the collective is just another cog in the machine, was that it? That we should all be more straight up for the people and all? You poor bastards. I'll tell you why I fell out. Your shit was loose. It's one thing to say you're on for the social good of the majority. Crime funds charity, and okay, it's a natural match. The government's bailout, and once it's clear the only beneficiaries of taxation are the Indu boys, it's a natural gap. I was down with that in the beginning. Econ 101, right? See a market void and fill it. Nobody's looking out for the masses. No food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, free market disaster. Great. Let's do something. Look carefully at the assignees of the Charter Congress. You'll find my name on there. Setting up house as a political voice. It all made sense to me. No shooters, only outsourcing, Sinn Féin meets MTV. Fuck. We don't have time for this shit. The thing is, do I help you? All the rest is just bullshit, isn't it? He walks over and leans as close as he can to Coordinator, modulating his voice down to a whisper. Are you the warrior? Destroyer of illusions? I know what my motivation is. What's yours? You got that little whiff of sulfur about you, lady. You must be the right girl for the job. If anybody can save Answer's ass, I guess it might be you. He pauses and stands up straight, carefully considering Coordinator. It just so happens that I still have some unfinished business with your Mr. Lo-Fi, and even though there's a good chunk of me that would like to say fuck it to this whole proposition, I'm going to help you meet your quota of saved lives. So here's what I've got. If it's a help, I'll get what I want later on. If not, then the world is both a greater and lesser place in which to live. Kali scrawls some information on a scrap of paper and hands it to her as he pulls back the cords holding her in the chair. By six o'clock, coordinator's on a hopper with a five-hour wake-up dissolving under her tongue. We will be back next week with Chapter 10 of Criminal Magic. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave a review or rating of this podcast and tell some friends about it.